Blog Talk Radio. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer, how to make an ask for money, create your story structure and your trailer, legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. Hi and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Our guest, Brad Lichtenstein, is the president of 371. He's an award-winning filmmaker whose recent film, As Goes Janesville, was nominated for a National News and Doc Emmy. It tells the story of laid-off workers and leaders in a Wisconsin GM town trying to reinvent their lives amid GM's collapse and a civil war over unions. It premiered on the PBS series Independent Lens in October of 2012, and coming in May of this year to PBS is Penelope, about a nursing home that performs the odyssey from Penelope's point of view. And Carol, I understand you are a big fan of Brad's documentaries. Yes, I am, Claire. And Brad, thank you so much. We really believe your work is extraordinary, and we are honored to have you. Well, thank you for inviting me. Well, we have so much to learn from you today, so I really wanted to start with um, something I read on your website that says that 371 Productions makes media projects and engagement campaigns that contribute to our common good. So tell us how you choose the films you make. Sure. Um, Well, we're very lucky in that we are very much mission-based and that we want to make films that are going to engage in the issues that are most important to discuss, that are vital to our democracy, um, you know, at at whatever time we're developing a film. So, uh, for instance, As Goes Janesville is really about labor relations, it's about unions, it's about the economy um, at a time when not only GM was collapsing, but also our country was in the throes of the deep part of the recession. Um, And right now we're working on a film about unsolved civil rights era murders that really resonates with the Black Lives Matter matters uh, movement and discussion across the country. So, you know, we really try to choose topics that are relevant to what we're dealing with as a nation at any given time. Well, so you look for things that you know will have uh, engagement campaigns afterwards. Is that right? Yeah, except that I wouldn't even say afterwards. Um, you know, ever since I started uh, working in this business, which was uh, years ago in New York with a company called Lumiere, um, we really started baking engagement right into the production and the distribution plan for our films. Um, and that we really, and I, you know, this, this is something we've grown even more since I've had my own company, um, 371, is we really feel like 
engagement is something that you need to plan uh, right from the start and start bringing partners who care about the subjects that you're addressing in your films into the fold as you're making the film. Um, not so much because we are advocacy filmmakers, we're not. We still are committed to journalistic principles and to cinematic um, aesthetic principles. But at the same time, we really want to be able to build relationships with partners who are going to engage audiences that really care about what we're doing so that the broadcast and a theatrical release and a film festival release, they all become a springboard um, for a year or more of all kinds of activity around the film that translates people's awareness into some kind of true engagement or action. Well, oh, that sounds fantastic. This is what it's all about, isn't it? <clears throat> You're making a film to bring awareness about a subject, and then if you can bring in the strategic partners early, that's exactly what um, I've been trying. I've been teaching in my intentional filmmaking class. <clears throat> Tell me how how do you engage people? Do you just get them on the phone and talk about your film? Or what's your first move? Sure. Well, I mean, it really depends on the film itself. So um, uh, let me talk a little bit about a film that we did called Almost Home that was about a year in the life of a nursing home that was trying to become a more humane and less sort of medical uh, place. And we followed residents and their families um, the people who worked on the line like CNAs every day and then management to sort of see how this was working for everybody um, and told a lot of personal stories. So with that film, we uh, recruited, I think, 17 national partners from the Alzheimer's Association to the organizations that represent all of the um, nursing homes, the nonprofit, and then the for-profit is a different organization and so forth. Um, and we would sort of have meetings uh, early on as we were starting to shoot and discuss really the question of, like, well, what's important to you? What do you think this film could mean or do for your organization? Um, and then ultimately we came together in a summit where we brought those organizations and we also invited public television stations to compete for some mini-grants that we had raised money for, um, and we invited 30 of those stations and then we invited those stations to include their local community partners. And at a summit, we determined a blueprint for how we would roll out the film and what we would develop to help enhance the engagement. And one of the hallmarks of that were workshops on about five different topics from end of life to long-term care to dealing with memory loss. And those workshops, we ended up looking for a way to sustain them because, of course, we have to turn our attention to the next film project, and we were able to incorporate those workshops into the work of other not-for-profits, um, and actually one company actually adopted them as well as part of their own orientation for their workforce, and that way it kind of lives on in terms of the impact um, beyond what we have the capacity to do, but what we did was we convened all these partners, and we helped shape a plan, and then we helped deliver it to all of the people who wanted to use what we had done for their own engagement. That's so that's a truly that's a commendable, models, but, Ed. but how um, how do you handle this financially? I mean, is it part, do you put in certain money in your budget for this? Absolutely. I actually, I actually think it's a huge opportunity because 
um, you know, I'm sure people who follow your work and, and listen to what you talk about um, are engaging in this question, too, about funding. And there's a huge opportunity in that there's a lot of foundations and other sources that might not fund film, either because they have a board decision never to fund film or because of some other reason, but they will fund engagement. And, you know, engagement is, I like to say, engagement is like the kissing cousin of uh, promotion. So there's a lot of value that can come out of engagement when you have lots and lots of partners out there Um, they're willing to promote your broadcast and other things related to your film to their email lists and on social media and in other ways at conferences and such. Um, So that's a huge value. And um, foundations that want to really see more programmatic uh, impact as opposed to media impact um, are willing to step up and fund this kind of thing or even fund your partners to do the work, and then some of that money can go to support uh, what the company is doing. So I guess in a nutshell, I see it as a huge opportunity. And generally, I would say, like, if the full budget of a project is around, you know, eight, nine hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars, usually about 20% of that money that gets raised is specifically for engagement. Specifically, so you put 20% of budget towards engagement. Correct, yeah. And that's to cover all kinds of stuff. That covers, you know, the uh, partnership relations. That covers if we do a summit or if we have other kinds of, like, ongoing communication. That's covered. We usually put money in there to um, to do some documentation of the engagement or – uh, to work with people in different locales to to film different engagement events, and then that helps us share that on social media, which of course feeds more audience to the engagement. So, you know, that budget has probably that part of the budget probably has twenty or thirty line items to it. My gosh! And do you get uh, a, much of your uh, income from grants? Could would, would you be able to say maybe you get 30 or 40% of your income for your films from grants? Um, well, it really depends on the film. If it, I mean, one of the goals, one of the broader strategic goals for my company is to diversify the income sources, which helps us to maintain cash flow because the timeline for grants, as many people out there probably know, it can be nine months, it can be two years, it takes a long time. And uh, so you can't really rely on it if you're trying to, to run the company and make sure everybody is, is paid. So we try to diversify with some straight-up commissions, like the mining film, Wisconsin's Mining Standoff, was a commission from Al Jazeera America. Uh, but then As Goes Janesville was supported um, entirely by grants. That was the MacArthur Foundation, that was ITVS. Those were the two big ones. Um, we also got the uh, uh, International Documentary Association's documentary grant, um, a local grant here in Milwaukee, um, and then a, um, a, a donor here in Milwaukee also uh, stepped up at a time when we were we were sort of facing a crisis financially. We were in between um, grants and needed some money to keep us going. So in that case, that was 100%. Um, But also we try to diversify what we're doing so that we have some income that's coming from clients, um, some income that's coming from uh, technology projects that we're doing, 
And as long as it all kind of fits within the mission, then, you know, it's acceptable to what we want to be doing in life. Uh, those are great grants you won. Those are wonderful. Well, let me uh, ask you, do you ever use crowdfunding as a source of income? Um, well, I'm very familiar with crowdfunding. Um, one of one of the hats that I've worn was I was a um, teacher or a mentor in the Creative Capital Foundation's program that they offered for years called Internet for Artists, where we would conduct weekend intensive workshops with artists around the country and help them learn how to raise money um, and sort of professionalize their practice so that they could do more of their art and less of whatever they were doing for income. And one of the things we would demonstrate and talk a lot about is crowdfunding. Um, However, uh, I have not had a need to do crowdfunding um, up to this point. My wife just engaged in an Indiegogo campaign and raised $42,000. Um, oh, congratulations. <laughs> That's incredible. Yes. So I guess, you know, tangentially I was associated with that crowdfunding campaign. Um, but, you know, I think I think it's different. It kind of depends on, um, you know, where you are in your career. And um, I'm now 46, soon to be 47, so I would say I'm probably mid-career. And luckily have been able to deliver on the promises and obligations that we've made to funders over the years. So um, funders are willing to, to listen to our pitches and um, a second and third time uh, for other projects. So I try to uh, spend most of our time focused on larger, um, you know, larger pools of money so that it translates into less time fundraising and more time filmmaking. Um, but I think crowdfunding is a wonderful thing, and if it's appropriate, you know, it's really good that it's available out there. Although I've definitely heard a lot of the criticism, too, that it's really just um, a lot of artists and socially-minded people supporting each other, which can be good. But on the other hand, um, it would be nice to see more foundations and government um, stepping up to support work that is not necessarily as viable in the commercial marketplace. Right, right. That's well. It's all about do it with others, and that's the purpose I think of many campaigns. Is marketing, is to reach people you already don't have in your database by um, through bloggers, through tweeters, through your friends and your current database, forwarding it to new people for you. But it is work. It it is work. (laughs) That is true. Well, <clears throat> so when you t- you talk about looking for uh, larger pools of money, you that is grants and or uh, organizations or one-on-one donations. What what are larger pools? Sure. Well, I mean, I think it really is uh, in terms of larger pools of money for documentary. It's really grants uh, because if if you aspire to have a television broadcast on PBS, then, um, you know, one has to be very familiar with the rules, the ethics rules that are um, written in the Red Book online. And they, of course, prohibit any funds coming from a source that would have, that could uh, convey an actual or the perception of a conflict of interest. So, um, for instance, in As Goes Janesville, 
um, I was approached by several unions to support the film because one of the main storylines in that film is the standoff between public sector unions and Governor Scott Walker of Wisconsin, who people might be familiar with because he's now a GOP uh, primary presidential candidate. And, oh, my. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that was just a shock. Um, I, <laughs> I saw the, um, let's see, I, uh, Alex Gibney's film where uh, they uh, tricked him on a, a phone call. Uh, no, that I, was my film. That was, it was your film. film. Oh, my God. Yeah. I just that film where they tricked him, and he admitted something. I was so ashamed for him and who he is. So that only followed. Well, well there, were two, there were two things. There was one was the fake phone call from a reporter who posed as one of the Koch brothers. Um, right. And, the, and then the other one, and Alex might have used that too in um, Park Avenue. I'm not quite sure. Um, yes, he did. And then, okay, so that one was there. And then there was a clip from our film that went viral which is Governor Walker with a billionaire donor, and she says, what can we do to finally be a red state and get rid of these unions? And he says, you know, I'm going to offer this bill, which was the bill to um, basically end collective bargaining in Wisconsin, and he says, you have, to, you have to divide and conquer. And then divide and conquer has now become a kind of meme that's associated with Scott Walker, which... I'm proud that our film was able to offer to the world. Yes, yes, well done. Because, I mean, we just saw the inside of the the whole, of the person. We we got to know who he really was. And um, what a facade when you see him because he's so charming and he looks like a family man and a caring, supporting. And then you hear these Things and you think, oh my gosh, I can't believe it! All for power. It's anyway. Ah, well done. <laughs> we could talk forever about Scott Walker. That is- <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so I'm so impressed with your work, and um, I have to go back to the community groups and organizations. And sure. if you could just give. Uh, Let's say emerging filmmakers, maybe people have made one film before and they're working on a film that fits uh, for an engagement campaign where a community could be involved. How would you suggest that they find and engage people to support their film? Sure, sure. Um, well, you know, there's a lot of different ways, uh, but I suppose that the a uh, common denominator is pretty simple, which is just put together a list of the organizations that you think would be interested or share the values that are conveyed in the film and start calling. Um, what I have noticed is that often trying to go to the very top is not necessarily the best thing to do with a large NGO um, because NGOs are usually organized into different divisions Some of them are very programmatic, hands-on. Some of them, you know, are dealing maybe with policy. Um, Other parts of it are maybe dealing with advocacy. And you really have to kind of figure out which part of an NGO is a good fit with what you're doing. So, for instance, um, with As Goes Jamesville, um, we were really interested in bringing groups from business and groups from labor together in an engagement campaign we called BizLab. 
And in that case, we were really interested in bringing policy folks together. So we would approach a union um, chapter through their, or the national union, but then work through them to find who's working on policy in different regions of the country. And then we would also um, approach chambers of commerce and ask who's working on policy in that same region and try to build dialogue events um, based on the work with those two constituencies. And so, you know, it's really about kind of being honest with yourself. I think a lot of times what many filmmakers, especially emerging filmmakers, feel very passionately is that everyone is going to be interested in their film and everyone is going to find it useful. And so when you ask that question, who's the audience for your film? Very often the answer is, well, everyone. So the truth, of course, is not everyone. You know, the reality is that uh, independent documentaries on PBS uh, generally will get about 600,000 to 1.5, 1.6 million viewers um, over, you know, over their broadcast life. And so in a nation that obviously has lots more people than 1.6 million on the big end, um, that says to you, okay, there's a, there are a series of niche audiences for my film, and the better you can identify who those niches are and then identify what NGOs or other organizations, maybe their business, maybe their government, are able to mobilize those niche audiences, then you'll solve the problem of figuring out who your, your most likely targets are uh, for partnership. Um, and, you know, uh, like, I'll, like another film, you know, that we did uh, when I was at Lumiere was called Caught in the Crossfire about Arab New Yorkers right after 9-11. And um, we had a pretty successful engagement campaign because one of our main characters in the film was a Lutheran priest uh, from or pastor from um, uh, from the Palestinian territories, and he had a church in Brooklyn, and um, he talked a lot about peace and a lot about sort of Muslim um, American issues and trying to sort of bridge gaps in understanding about the Muslim community and the larger. Uh, in that case, New York community. So um, we reached out to the Lutheran Church. The, um, um, I'm forgetting the name of the Lutheran. I, there's different branches, but this was a very large one. And it turned out that they um, had a whole initiative to use film in churches to provoke dialogue and discussion. Um, Wonderful. So it was kind of a yeah, it was kind of a plug and play thing. Um, I think we created 300 DVDs because this was, you know, 2002. So um, we created, I think, 300 DVDs, distributed them to all the target churches that um, the Lutheran Church worked with us on. Um, and we sort of created a um, study guide or a facilitation guide, uh, which, by the way, um, if you're an ITVS-funded film, very often ITVS will help you create a, a, a viewing or screening facilitation guide. Um, and we handed those out or sent them those out and, you know, boom, we had over 300 screenings that were happening in churches all across America of the film and a dialogue right after, especially at a time when, wow. well, that dialogue is still important, but it was very important right after 9-11. Very important. Absolutely. Well, you also had uh, something wonderful happened with Wisconsin's mining and standoff that uh, that premiered on the Al Jazeera, America's Fault Lines. And I read on your website that after several broadcasts there and on the sister network, 
Uh, the film screened over 50 times in the state of Wisconsin. So tell me more about how, how you did that film. Sure. Uh, well, the film itself was, um, I mean, personally, it was very satisfying, if I may, because um, this was the first film uh, in the 10 years that the company has been around. I think it's been 10 years, yeah. Um, where I would always, a- I always ask my younger colleagues that are working for me to feel free to pitch films to me. And um, if we can find a home and funding for them, then we'll produce them. And um, we've tried before, but in this case, uh, a really smart and um, very committed young woman, her name is Devin Caperi, who had never produced a film in her life. She was actually a, um, a student in environmental uh, science at Brown University, had come home to Milwaukee. Um, she joined our company because she saw As Goes Janesville and got interested in film. And she worked on a couple projects, and then she pitched me, along with um, Colin Seitzma, who's someone who also works here, um, a film about this uh, controversy over what would be uh, the, one of the nation's largest open pit mines in northern Wisconsin. Um, and so that combined with the fact that when I left New York, a lot of the people that I knew in development and at network said, you know, pitch us stories from the heartland. You know, we, it's so hard if you're sitting in New York to know what's happening in the middle of the country. So here we are situated in Wisconsin. A young uh, aspiring producer does all the research and pitches this really great topic. Uh, This mine was was dividing communities um, between those who wanted the jobs and those who feared what would happen to the environment, especially um, the tribes that live up there, uh, mostly the Bad River, but others as well. And um, we pitched that idea to... Al Jazeera America, um, and they said yes. And so I guess what I'm leading to is it makes me proud because Devin and Colin were the producers for that film. I served as an executive producer, um, and I did a lot to help them in the edit room, but they really produced that film. And um, that film, because they produced it, they felt so passionate about it making a difference that we were able to get permission from Al Jazeera America to do community screenings in this in the place where it mattered most, you know, right here in Wisconsin where it's a hot topic. You know, there's all kinds of charges around corruption in terms of how the legislation was written that changed environmental laws in the state to accommodate what the mine wanted. And, um, and then um, all of the um, ways in which it's dividing uh, the community here. And I think we're actually up to 58 community screenings um, and these are all opportunities for people who care about this issue to get together, to meet one another, to learn about each other's organizations. Some of them have really been debates um, with policy people, people from the Department of Natural Resources, people from local chambers of commerce, um, trying to uh, you know, figure out where the truth is in all of the claims of different sides of this controversy. Um, and it's definitely making a difference. I mean, we, we've seen that the film has been cited a number of times at public hearings, in other news stories, um, and even yesterday um, we shared news that the chief lobbyist for the mining company uh, was uh, appointed by Governor Walker uh, to be um, a, a special assistant to the Public Service Commission. So he's making that leap from lobbying for 
a corporation that wants to change mining laws to being part of the Public Service Commission, which, um, you know, is charged with regulating, among other things, regulating wastewater and groundwater. Um, uh-huh. We pointed that out on our website, and I've noticed that it's been shared about 430 times so far. Um, so <laughs> there's a lot of engagement that's been going on with that film since it aired. Wow. See, this uh, this is the power of the Internet, the power that you have as a filmmaker. Um, and so well done. That's something that has to get out there because that would uh, people need to know what's going on. And it's only through investigative reporters, which you you appear to be working in this same vein as what we had before, which most of them are gone. You're certainly not on my television, right? Right, right. No, absolutely. In in fact, one of the the really fun parts about working on that was to go much more into an investigative mode. And, um, you know, we were working with other folks and did some of it ourselves where we were getting data, uh, from different government agencies and trying to sort through it and understand, you know, what um, the company and, for that matter, the government was saying about the impact on the environment versus what the data is actually suggesting. And we were actually able to catch the the same person, the chief lobbyist, in, um, suppose I won't say lies, but some less than complete truths um, during our interview with him. And, uh you know, that kind of work, I mean, I want to shout out for Devin again because she had to do so much research to be able to prepare us and our correspondent for the interviews, and she did such a good job that I'm told the briefing book she created has now become a standard at Al Jazeera America for their Fault Line series. Wow. How, what a great achievement. Well, Yeah, 24-year-old, 20, 25-year-old young woman. So, oh, yeah, we're proud of her. Yeah, you should be, and and congratulations to you for giving her her head and letting her run with that project. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so let's. Go, I want to know more about this new film you're working on called Hard Earned. Sure. Hard Earned sure. America. So Hard Earned is a six part series. Um, the executive producers of it is our Cartemquin Films, which is a Chicago based. Uh, film documentary company that has been around since the 60s. Their most famous film is Hoop Dreams. I'm sure you've heard of Hoop Dreams. Right. Um, And so they um, hired six of us, uh, was it five or six of us, directors from around the country to follow stories about, um, you know, people who have not been able to um, enjoy any of the recovery that uh, America supposedly is in the middle of economically. Um, You know, people who are wage workers whose wages have not increased and their opportunities have not increased. If anything, for instance, one of the stories is about someone who works at Walgreens in Chicago. And um, at Walgreens, he is not given enough hours to qualify for benefits. And so he's trying to support his family essentially as a part-time worker. Um, And at a certain point, he can't take it anymore, and he decides that he's going to work for the Fight for 15, which is the the effort by different unions um, and and other groups to fight for a $15 minimum wage. Um, And that actually becomes his job. He becomes a full-time organizer. Um, 
the story that I followed was here in Milwaukee of a man who should be retired. Um, he's in his late 60s, and he's worked a variety of factory jobs. And Milwaukee's story is like many industrial cities that saw a collapse of manufacturing and associated manufacturing jobs in the 70s and the 80s. And there hasn't really been much of a recovery from those days. And so when he was younger, he used to be able to make a lot of money working in factories. If you got fired or you quit, you could find a job the next day somewhere else. But now he lives in a city. He's African-American. He lives in a city that is severely segregated. Um, Opportunities for African-Americans, particularly older African-Americans, are very few and far between, especially because most of the jobs have moved out of the center city, even though he and and many others um, like him live in the center city. And so transportation becomes an issue, all kinds of impediments to being able to find decent work. He and his wife, when they were um, doing better, she was a social worker for the city. Um, When they were doing better, they bought a house. Um, And what happened to his wife, Beverly, also um, impacted their economic future. She was one of lots of government workers that were fired and then rehired under a contract with a temp agency, which, again, reduced her benefits and salary. And so they went from solid middle class to really struggling. Their house is underwater. They're getting older and trying to figure out what to do in terms of their own health and mobility. Um, And so that's sort of the struggle they're facing, and that was the story that I told. All of the stories have gotten weaved together in this six-hour series, and it's going to start airing in mid-May on um, Al Jazeera America, and we also are going to be doing some engagement activity um, with that series as well. You know, I have to make sure that I I don't see that uh, channel. I want to make sure I have that on my cable lineup if I have to pay extra because they seem to really have some good product. They really, you know, the documentary unit at Al Jazeera America has made a real commitment to um, good reporting and social issue documentary. Um, In fact, some of the people that we work with over there came from the PBS world and the ITBS world. Um, Carrie Lozano is a producer, uh, was a producer of PBS programs, and now she's uh, the um, head of the fault lines. Actually, I think she's now the head of the documentary unit. And Cynthia Kane used to be at ITVS, and she's working with the documentary unit. She was one of the um, producers there that worked with us on that series. Um, they're doing great stuff, and they're expanding their cable footprint. Um, I know that uh, when we aired Wisconsin Mining Standoff, um, I think it was AT&T, U-verse did not carry Al Jazeera America. Now they do. They're expanding their streaming, so Wisconsin Mining Standoff will start streaming sometime in April on their website. Um, so it's changing, but it is still a little difficult to find Al Jazeera, Al Jazeera America on the cable lineup. Right. Well, I'll definitely find out how, because that's what that's the type of films I'd love to see. Um all right, tell me more about this. Uh, you led a team that built BizViz. It's a mobile app and website that gives users instant access to corporations' effective tax rate. 
campaign contributions and government subsidies. I can't believe that such a thing exists, so tell us about it. <laughs> sure. Well, uh, anyone can download BizViz. It's B-I-Z-V-I-Z-Z from the iTunes store um, or from the App Store, sorry, the Apple App Store. Um, and there's also a website, just bizviz.com. But the, the, map, the mobile app is more exciting because we designed it sort of as a toy. Um, it lets you take a picture of a brand or a logo or a product, and if that uh, company that manufactures that or has that logo or manufactures that product is in our database, and I think we are up to like 450 companies, so basically the Fortune 450, um, then you will find out all the things you just said, their corporate tax rate, who they give their politics money to, and what kind of government subsidies they got. So this was really uh, the main engagement campaign that came out of Asgos Janesville. Um, there was a storyline in Asgos Janesville where the city of Janesville, down on its luck when GM shut down, decided uh, the city council voted to give an enormous amount of money and other incentives to a company called Shine Medical that wanted to, uh, to build a factory that would uh, create isotopes that are used for nuclear medicine. And the city was very excited, and so they subsidized this company. And I will point out that uh, it's now been three years since they, that vote, I believe, and the company has not broken ground. In fact, they're still raising their capital. So it hasn't paid off yet. Now, the company may well pay off. Um, we'll see. But that's the kind of gamble that a lot of cities decide to take on. And so I wanted to ask the question, well, large scale, what kind of subsidies are companies getting on a regular basis? And while we're at it, what kind of taxes do they pay? And, you know, is there a quid pro quo? Who are they giving money to to be able to get this kind of tax break or this kind of subsidy. And we worked with a team of designers based in Philadelphia called Faculty Creatives um, and came up with BizViz. And we worked with a number of organizations that were helping us in a variety of ways as partners. So, for instance, um, the data in that app, the political data contributions comes from the Sunlight Foundation. The subsidy data comes from Good Jobs First. And the tax data comes from the Center uh, the uh, Citizens for Tax Justice. Um, and these are all D.C.-based organizations that we partnered with. And then we also wanted partners to help push the app out there because I think we're up to about 33,000 users. And the initial push, we probably got three-fourths of those users. So uh, we worked also with the Tax Justice Network, with the AFL-CIO, um, with the U.S. Public Interest Research Group, and also another movie that was aligned with our values called We're Not Broke, which was uh, a theatrical release. They didn't have a PBS broadcast, but nonetheless, uh, they worked with us. And we were able to sort of mobilize all of the constituencies of these organizations to get interested in using BizBiz. And now we're actually formulating a plan. You know, I talked about sustainability around engagement. So we want to get out of the business of updating it and so forth because it's very hard to raise money for that on a regular basis. We want to find some of our partner organizations that will take it on and then pass it off to them. 
Um, so I'm working on that right now as we speak and figuring out how to sort of put together some funding for the transition plan and figure out which organizations will be the right fit. Oh, yes, because we need this. People really need to wake up and find out what's going on behind the scenes because what you uh, spoke about, that one event, is (laughs) sort of like uh, it's the beginning. It's the tip of the iceberg. Uh, What goes on, uh, if people knew, they wouldn't believe it. So the way to do it is to show it in an app and to show it also in documentary films so we get an idea it's the um, who's paying the taxes? Who's the one supporting all of the wars and and uh, the military industrial complex in this nation? And I think it's us. It's you and I. Right. Right. And if you and if you look at um, if you look at the app, for instance, GE, GE doesn't pay any taxes. GE actually gets a rebate every single year. Uh, because they have more that they write off as loss than they do as income in their United States tax filing. And, you know, that this is what um, has been an issue with the president and with Congress around offshoring profits. And, you know, there's some legislation that's being drafted right now, we'll see where it goes, that would, um, that would try to bring those uh, profits, that income, back home and the companies complain that they are double taxed, um, and so they, they tax on the income, and then they tax on the reimporting of the income. So they want reform, um, and um, others complain that, uh, in fact, they're not taxed at all, and that's the problem. So we'll see where it ends up, but it's definitely an issue that's out there in front of our legislators. I always think of Warren Buffett when he made the statement that yes. his uh, office, the woman who cleans his office, pays more taxes than he does. Absolutely. Yeah, that was actually something that was uh, a partnership between an organization. I'm trying to remember. It was United for a Fair Economy, I believe, um, did the work to help Warren Buffett um, go public with that statement. And he also wrote a short essay that that sort of is part of called um, um, I Didn't Do It Alone or We Didn't Do It Alone, where he really talks about the way in which um, there's a lot of hidden benefit that uh, companies get. So, for instance, if you're a company that makes widgets, you know, makes products, you are benefiting from the public subsidy of our highway system. And how is that sort of captured um, in the total picture of, of profit and ultimately income tax. So there's a lot of interesting stuff that uh, Mr. Buffett has tried to bring out to the public's attention. Which uh, uh, I really applaud him. And I was watching a film um, about um, it's a about a uh, school. It's a university where in in a prison where they educate people, and it's the same classes, same teachers as in the real school, but they go over to the university and teach uh, the people, and they give them degrees. And at the end, when these uh, men were graduating from uh, from school, actually, while still imprisoned, who's in the audience but Warren Buffett? Oh, really? Yes, he was there, so he's probably a supporter of that program financially. Um, he 
Uh, it's nice little surprises like that that I find that really makes you understand who who cares about America, who still has a heart and a generosity for the true America that you and I are still fighting for survival. Well, and it's it's so important too when you bring up prisons. Um, it's a topic that we've cared about a lot. We we made I made a film called uh, Ghost of Attica when I was with uh, Lumiere. And um, it's a film I'm really proud of. It, it won a DuPont Award, um, and it followed the story of Attica um, and then the, story, the contemporary story of the prisoners there and the uh, former guards who were held as hostages and how they've been trying to get justice from New York State over the course of 30-plus years. Uh, but, but the context in which you brought it up is interesting. You know, when, um, when Attica happened in the 1970s, that is really the beginning of the end of almost, uh, I'm sorry, the beginning of almost all of the efforts to uh, work on reducing recidivism by bringing education and the arts into prisons and recognizing that everybody who's in a prison except for lifers are going to one day be citizens again. And then, of course, when um, Reagan was elected, it sort of ended that effort and almost all of those programs were eventually cut. So, I'm happy to hear that some of those programs are coming back because, you know, we have over, I think, 3 million, is that the number now, people in prison? And, um, and of course, those people are disproportionately African-American when compared to the crimes. Um, you know, there's a great book that if people haven't read it, they should, called The New Jim Crow, um, which is all about the way in which the laws um, unfairly discriminate against African-American males with respect to our penal system and our um, judicial system. And so, you know, all these issues are really with us. And I guess you're mentioning that film made me think of all these connections. Yes, it does. It really, you have to make all those connections. Well, there is an article, there was an article in the Washington Post in January that we now have more prisons than colleges. Or are people <gasps> enrolled or more, or more actual prisons? More actual prisons in college, with oh. population of uh, two million inmates, uh, five years ago there were only there were five prisons in the U.S. with population of two thousand inmates, and ten years later there were over one hundred private prisons holding more than sixty-two thousand inmates. And since then, that number has increased again. It just keeps growing, and they are private prisons now, so they're they're there to make a profit. Boy. That's kind of depressing, isn't it? Yes, it's really. Yes. <laughs> All right, well, let's get back to some of the wonderful stuff you're doing. Um, you're moving into radio. Bravo on that. So um, you're heading a team producing Precious Lives. Uh, tell us about that, please. Sure, sure. So, um, well, first of all, I will just admit that I'm such a huge fan of radio. I think it's. You know, if you could really make a living in radio, which I guess people do, I would probably try to focus on that. But um, radio is such a different a different way to receive a story. You know, I know it's almost cliche to say it, but it's, it's intimate. It can um, really create, you know, as they say, the theater of the mind to put your, the theater of the mind into motion. And so Precious Lives... Um, is a project where we're doing 100 stories, so two years, weekly stories, about seven minutes each, about young people and gun violence. 
the origins of the project uh, was very impulsive, actually. Um, it was not after, not long after the um, horrible shootings at Newtown, and I was listening to the radio, and I heard um, a piece on one of my favorite shows called On the Media from WNYC, and the piece was about a reporter who was trying to tell stories about kids who were affected by gun violence in New York, and um, it was called In Harm's Way. And so I um, listened to excerpts from her pieces, and I was so moved. I ran inside the house, and the first thing I did was I found the reporter, Kathleen Horan, on Facebook, and I, and I um, chatted her on Facebook and just said, I was so moved by what you did. I, I'd love to hear a little bit of how you went about it. I, I feel like we should do something here in Milwaukee because our gun violence is out of control. And she said simply, I just sought out and talked to people who love these kids. I mean, it was advice that, like, moved me to tears. And the next call I made was to a foundation here that has supported my work for years called the Helen Bader Foundation. Now they're called Bader Philanthropies. And I I just sort of pitched them right away, you know, what if we kind of did what Kathleen is doing in New York, but let's really expand it. Let's scale it up so that we can get the whole city focused on the problem of gun violence by doing it for two full years, you know, not like a six-week miniseries. And let's take a broader view. Let's not just look at this as like a memorial for kids who've been killed by gun violence. Let's look at the problem as more of a public health problem. And that gives us an ability to look at it from a variety of lenses and perspectives. Um, And then, like we've been talking about during this entire conversation, um, who are the partners that we can bring in? Um, And so that's how the project was born. Um, That foundation and another foundation stepped up to fund the project. And um, we, because I think the project uh, topic is so urgent, we were able to get uh, multiple media partners to play along together. So what's going on is that the, these pieces, these stories, they are airing on our local public radio station, WWM, our local black talk radio station, WNOV, our local newspaper, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, posts them as podcasts, and then they do additional reporting around each of the stories and feature it on its own page. So if you click, then you go to a Precious Lives page that has all of the material we've been generating. And then um, I just had a meeting with um, Wisconsin Public Radio, which is the rest of the state, and they're interested. And then we partnered with the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism, which is one of a number of investigative journalism outfits around the country, and um, they bring to the mix an ability to sort of look at data and big picture numbers. Like, for instance, we want to do a story about how New York and Minneapolis came together and created a blueprint for reducing violence and brought together all of their forces, you know, NGOs, companies, and the government to work on this problem. And why isn't there some kind of blueprint or strategy like that in Milwaukee or in Wisconsin? So it brings to the mix, you know, a variety of skill sets in terms of our own producer, Emily Foreman, who's really great at character-driven stories, um, our partners who have different kinds of connections in the community, um, and they have different ways that they air these. So when it goes on public radio, it's part of an hour-long program called Lake Effect, which is the cultural and public affairs hour, 
And so they often will interview somebody from the story or interview an expert related to the story leading up to it or following it. Um, WNOV does it as part of a four-hour block of call-in. So they will use the story to trigger community conversation following it among their listeners. And the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel has, you know, comments on their page where they get dialogue going. Um, And through all these different partners, we're able to really get it out there. But then we also are partnered with, you guessed it, you know, 48, I think now, uh, community partners. And, you know, I talked about a summit before. In this case, we decided we don't really want to do a summit. What we're doing is something we call small tables. So Paul Keelan, who's our engagement director, will sit down with two or three partners at a time. We try to pick partners who don't know each other, so maybe someone who's working on violence prevention and another organization that's working on trauma therapy for victims of violence. And we want them to meet each other so they can discover ways that they can collaborate. And then out of those discussions, we learn of different stories that we can tell um, different programs that we can help lead people to from our, our audience to lead them to action. And we also start discovering new ideas and viewpoints that we didn't consider before um, because, you know, all of our partners know a lot more about the topic than we do. Um, so that's that's the program, and, and it's very intentionally local because um, we can have more impact, I think, that way. And I hope, and it's something we'll start working on, but I hope that we can uh, kind of use this as a model and try to replicate this in other cities that are similarly dealing with gun violence and young people and want to try to use media to solve the problem. Well done. Yes, that would be something that could be replicated in other cities. Uh, I, what an amazing amount of work went into this. May mm-hmm. I ask how many people on your staff uh, helped with this? <laughs> uh, well, the team for that project, uh, is led by Emily Foreman. She's our senior producer, and she's a public radio producer who attended the Salt Institute for Documentary um, in Maine and really learned her storytelling skills there. But she came to us from Sitka, Alaska, was her last uh, her last gig, um, telling stories um, up in that part of the country. Um, so she's our, our lead, and then we're working with a man named Eric Vaughn, um, and it's an interesting story. Eric Vaughn is a fixture in talk radio in our community. Um, there were, used to be two black talk radio stations, and um, I had been on his program on that station before. And then uh, I called him up. I told him about this project and wanted to partner. And he said, well, that's all well and good, except that our station is going to switch formats and we're all out of a job. So I asked him if he wanted to join our team as a producer and he is now one of our producers and also is the voice that sets up all the stories and that closes all the stories. So Emily does the body mm-hmm. of the story, and he is the intro and the outro. Um, and then uh, our team also consists of Paul Keelan, whose job is partnership engagement. Um, so he's in charge of all that. And I uh, play more of like an executive producer role Um, I've been lining up initially most of the partnerships, especially the media one, the funding, uh, sort of, you know, the overall vision of the project. Um, And then, you know, luckily, Emily and Eric and Paul um, are really 
working hard to make it all reality. And then, you know, we have a musician who uh, scores and does the soundtrack. His name is Kiran B. And he has this pretty cool group called the Fresh Collective. And so he does all the scoring. Um, And then, you know, various people come in and out. I mean, we have a weekly meeting with all of our media partners. So reporters Mm -hmm. from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, from Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism, uh, and from the two radio stations and hopefully soon three radio stations, they all are in the mix. They're all contributing ideas. Sometimes they go out and do the initial reporting. Uh, so it's it's a pretty big team, actually. It sounds wonderful. And what changes you can make? Because, I mean, the kids themselves are going to be listening to that. And maybe they'll think twice before they kill one of their own, before they kill your another. List- from your lips to God's ears, that would be wonderful. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Well, uh, this was the fastest hour I have ever seen, Brad. We are at the close. <laughs> my gosh, I sincerely thank you for the work you're doing, and I know I speak for my entire audience. We all thank you. And uh, so I hope that we can come back to you in a few months. I really want to learn more about Penelope. Uh, and uh, this nursing home creating a performance based on Homer's Odyssey. Perhaps we can come back and learn about that and other things in the future. Oh, it would be a pleasure, and I really appreciate you asking me to be part of this. I'm so so proud to have you on the show. Now, just yeah. tell people how uh, what your website is and how they can find your information, please. Absolutely. Well, the easiest thing to do is just to go to 371 productions.com and of course we're also on facebook um we also have a website as goes janesville.com and precious lives project.org uh so lots of ways to engage um and if i may i also want to give a quick shout out um you know i and so many people who work in this industry making social issue films we really strive to have broadcasts on independent lens and pov on pbs and at yes. this moment, there's um, a real danger that these series could be moved off of prime time. So I've joined with about 15 other filmmakers around the country in something called the Indie Caucus, which is IndieCaucus.org. And we are working really hard to negotiate and influence PBS and work with Independent Lens and POV to make sure that these series, which really are the most diverse series in the country, if not the world, um, to make sure that they're secure on PBS. So if people are interested in that, too, I'd really urge them to get involved with the Indie Caucus. Thank you so much. That's Yes, I'm glad to hear that you're fighting for your own security there. It's about the time. They want to put it at uh, some diff- different time zone or time? Well, it's, it's a little complicated, but the simple... Uh, issue is that WNET, which is the flagship station in New York City, uh, without consulting filmmakers or those two series, uh, tried to move POV and independent lens off of its regular Monday at 10 p.m. slot to a secondary station in New York called WLIW, which has a large footprint but a very small audience. And then they were going to replace it with a repeat of arts programming so um, we started fighting back, and we got them to reverse that decision, but the game is not up at all. And at the PBS annual meeting in May, 
PBS is going to announce uh, what they've termed to be a new national strategy, um, and that could go very well. It might be doubling down on the commitment to this kind of independent film, or it could go very badly. It could be really moving POV and independent lens off of prime time or to something like Friday night, which in television is a dead zone. Um, and people don't realize, but broadcast is still the number one way that people consume media. And um, we're all about working with PBS to also get a really vibrant presence in streaming and all the new platforms. But we want to make sure that the most diverse and the most engaging in terms of democracy series on the public television do not go away. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. Thank you very much for telling us and for sharing the full hour with tons of information, Brad. But we wish you the best of luck. Thank you yeah. very, very much. Good luck to you, too. Okay. Thanks, Claire. Right. Yes. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Brad. Be well, everyone. Okay. Thank Bye. you. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to the Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone. <laughs>